0: names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's
1: copyright infringement. To escaping Society, episode 55, Robin the Hood. I'm Teresa. I'm Gumby. And we're up here on the Blue Ridge Parkway in North Carolina, and it feels so nice. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd also like to say that we are in the occupied lands of the Cherokee, the elk, which we actually saw some elk the other day.
0: Yeah, wow. Down there around Cherokee, the elk are really... Uh... What would you say? Like not shy?
1: No, they're very inquisitive, and they're. Um, I think at, at least in part, they just. They're just doing their own thing, and if humans are there, humans be damned.
0: And the thing that tickles me about the Blue Ridge Parkway is how many bikers, which will probably be interrupted at some point with the sound of a motorcycle. <laughs> but uh, Teresa and I get a chuckle at all these like big burly <laughs> bikers with big long beards, like stopping at these overlooks, and we <laughs> imagine them talking to each other like, "Did you get that mad dog, man? That's pretty. Let's get a picture. We take a picture of me so I can send it home to my mama. I like pretty things. I like pretty things. <laughs> but right on. We all like pretty things.
1: And I also <coughs> wanted to mention that. Uh, you know, we, we talk about the occupied lands and we often talk uh, about bigger species that, you know, we think about birds or or elk, for example. Uh, but there was a website that I saw that was for North Carolina, but it gave endangered species by, by county. So this arbitrary line on a map, but still I found it interesting. So I'll name some of these that are um, in the general area that we're in. Uh, species that maybe you haven't heard of and that are going, um, that are endangered. So rock gnome lichen, spreading avens, small world begonia. That's a beer. Green pitcher plant, which is only, um, I guess in one county in North Carolina, as well as in Georgia and the spruce fir moss spider. So when we talk about all those species going extinct every day, um, Remember, there are small things and and things that are maybe uh, not on our minds, like lichen and spiders. So yeah. Um, this episode is about Robin Hood and kind of what Robin Hood represents in our world. At first, I was just thinking of picking this topic because Robin Hood seems like a badass and I like to talk about at least one badass every season.
0: And he's a guy that escapes society you know, in in his
1: way. And just the staying power of the Robin Hood story. I read um, on Wikipedia that uh, there was this guy, Joseph Ritson, in 1795. He was kind of a little obsessed with Robin Hood, and he compiled all of these quote-unquote facts about Robin Hood. And he determined that Robin Hood was born in 1160, in the 12th century, and by... Uh, I think it was...
0: 1160 is the earliest year that you found for a possible, like, telling of Robin Hood, right?
1: Yes. Um, By the time of this really well-known English uh, poem called Piers Plowman uh, that was composed in the 1370s, there were already rhymes of Robin Hood being told. So this story, however, it got to be whether there was an actual Robin Hood or it was like a somebody did something and it became this tall tale. It was already circulated in effect. People knew about it in just common culture by the 1370s. So yeah, um, I just, I just felt like that was pretty amazing because this is a story of an outlaw of someone that is, that is not what our society thinks of as like acceptable. And here's a story that just keeps coming up. Yeah,
0: that's something that I really like about the Robin Hood story. And I've mentioned this in other podcasts about we've got this hero that's, you know, 700 years old. This is a, a, a hero that's lasted in our culture, way predating all of our modern superheroes, you know, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, et cetera. And what a strange hero for our culture to hold on to. <laughs> An outlaw, a breaker of the very laws that stem from our culture. a a leader of a resistance, an organizer, you know, not just a common mugger or thug, but like somebody who's like standing for something. And what he stands for that we consider noble in the story, you know, why he's a hero, not just a thug, is in direct opposition to what our culture is doing and still does. I I find that fascinating about Robin Hood.
1: And just briefly, I guess I'll, um, I mean, these these things I'm going to talk about right now, you can look up more online, but I just wanted to set the mood a little bit for what was going on during the time of, of Robin Hood, whether it was the 12th or 13th century. Um, so even at the start of the Middle Ages, the English landscape had been shaped by human occupation over many centuries. Uh, much of the woodland was actually new and had been reclaimed by brush after the collapse of the Roman Empire.
0: What do you mean the woodland was new?
1: Um, There was, it was kind of, there were a lot of disturbed woodlands, so...
0: Oh, you mean like it was farmed or whatever mm -hmm. and that the woodland was growing back?
1: Yeah. Oh. And the Normans, um, who had invaded parts of uh, this land called England, they used forests, uh, they exploited the forests for natural resources, even back then. And they were also building castles everywhere, the Normans. Woo, pretty stuff.
0: What do you mean exploited? Like, or were they logging to build like big houses? Because you could say like Native Americans, you know, have a low level and sustainable level of, of exploitation of the natural resources.
1: I think in the way that this article was talking, it was about um, trying to, well, they built their castles out of stone. So I'm not sure if they were like digging up stones from the woods or the the land and then maybe like, yeah, maybe logging. I think they were exporting, um, wood at that time. And they were also not necessarily the Normans, but, uh, people in the general area of England were growing a lot of wool. So maybe they were not only exploiting what was already in the forest, but then tearing it down and making it into a place where the sheep could, uh, graze, Mm. um, deer and boar parks for the nobility Uh, were established from the 12th century onward. And bears were hunted to extinction in England by the 11th century. Beavers were hunted to extinction by the 12th century. Uh, Between the 9th and 13th centuries, England went through the medieval warming period where they had warmer temperatures in the north uh, of of England. And um, also, there had just been a civil war from 1135 to 1153. It was known as the Anarchy. It was a civil war over the succession to the throne in England and Normandy. And it resulted in widespread breakdown of law and order. In fact, it was said that there was nothing but disturbance and wickedness and robbery.
0: So this is like the time period Robin Hood comes from in the Anarchy?
1: Supposedly. Wow, that's cool. (laughs) 1160-ish, yeah. Um, technology and science were advancing in the 12th century due to the greek and islamic influences Um, and that also not just included things like arabic numerals and advances in measuring time but also astrology magic and palm reading (laughs) william of ockham ockham does that sound familiar
0: well, I've heard of Occam's Razor. I don't yeah. know if it's the
1: same Occam. Yep, same one. Awesome. And the universities of Oxford and Cambridge were established.
0: And Occam's Razor, if I'm right, is the theory that, like, the simplest solution is usually the best, so it's kind of like cutting out the the fluffy shit and the fat, and, like, what's left is, like, usually the right answer. Sounds right. <laughs>
1: um, windmills began to be built in the 12th century, as well as water-powered mills and hammers in the 12th century. Um road bridges were erected or rebuilt in the economic boom of the 12th and 13th century. So there's kind of a bunch of things going on. It sounds like there's an economic boom and there was an increase in population. Uh, like the It doubled uh, by 1300 from like 1086. They had 1. 1.5 million people and then they went to 4 or 5 million in 1300. And just right before uh, the first outbreak of the Black Death, In 1348,
0: there was a... There's somebody who wants to see some pretty things. Yeah,
1: there was a Great Famine. So you had a Great Famine um, that lasted about seven years, and then the first outbreak of the Black Death soon... Well, maybe like 20 years after. um, It killed half the population of England. More land at the expense of forests was being used to produce food for the growing population and, again, to export wool across Europe. Um interestingly enough though Gaelic Ireland prior to the Norman English conquest of Ireland uh, the land was still owned by tribes it was held in common by the entire tribe and
0: wait a minute let me stop there yeah in Ireland it was held in common so you're saying like that was sort of the there was still like the indigenous yeah uh, you know the the Irish are still living somewhat indigenously on the land yeah okay
1: the English conquest of Ireland I I wrote down, it began in the 12th century. So up until that point, they were holding on to their tribes, their indigenousness. Um,
0: That fascinates me to think of a time that white people, you know, that are, I mean, in America, especially, I don't know how it is in other countries, but we grew up thinking of like white equals colonizer. Like it's just, you're born with it to imagine this time that Robin Hood comes from when white people remembered their indigenous roots and that the poor people probably were like I would imagine more connected to that because they had to be
1: mm-hmm. they
0: didn't have all the luxuries of the time and everything
1: and i guess the final thing i'll wrap this up by saying as early as the 12th century um but it started more in the 13th century the idea of enclosure in england they were consolidating or enclosing small land holdings into larger farms. And of course, then that was owned by the nobility. Um, like I said, even as early as the 12th century, some open fields were enclosed into individually owned fields. And this was said to be one of the reasons for the British Agricultural Revolution. So you've got Poor people that were using the common lands, whether it was to graze or to forage or to hunt, hunt um, to get things to burn for fuel, whether it was for their, you know, cooking fire or to do whatever. Um, and then the rich people were like, well, we're actually going to take this land and we're going to make it ours so you can stay on the land. Um, the Normans also brought the idea of serfdom. And so people that stayed on the lands, you could call them serfs, they were also known as, I believe it's pronounced villains, but it's spelled V-I-L-L-E-I-N. Now this word is interesting because it also sounds like villain, like a bad guy. So I looked it up and let me look at my notes here. So villain came from the late Latin villainous. Those bound to the soil of the villa, they worked on the equivalent of a plantation, basically. And villains, um, it was also, of course, started to be used as a derogatory term. In um, French, it was "villain" v i l a i n. It meant ugly or naughty. Um, and in Italy, I think it it was also like a term of abuse. And now, of course, villain, with an A-I-N at the end, means scoundrel or criminal.
0: So I guess back then, you know, it was sort of like saying, like, that that ruffian, that vagabond, that villain.
1: Well, and it was was like a step better than a vagabond because at least you had land, but you couldn't leave it. And if your daughter was married off, you had to pay a fine because that was one less person to work the land. Hmm. So it was like, you could have the land to, to work on, but it's our land, but you can stay here. So you're not landless, so you're not a vagabond.
0: In days of old, when ye white people were property as well.
1: (laughs) Exactly. So, yeah, so that was the time around about where Robin Hood came from. And to think that, you know, this is a hero tale of an outlaw, and here we are talking about villains as Mm -hmm. people who were bound to the land, and now we think of them as lawless members of society. So what are, um, what are some things nowadays that we would consider outlaw-ish,
0: Gumby? (laughs) I feel like you're trying to lead me what's...
1: (laughs) Well, uh, I think you looked up some things that are kind of, like, uh, common. Okay, okay,
0: yeah, I did look up, you know, it, it occurred to me that, like, we have this word outlaw, and likewise what Teresa's describing, villain, and, you know, we often tend to separate ourselves from that, like... You know, if I have a kid in my camp and I'm like, so do you want to be a hero or a villain? Or do you see yourself as a hero or a villain? Most kids aren't going to say villain. You know, we're taught that that's not something we are. Likewise, outlaw. But I found 10 things that I've, I've, when I looked them up, they are like very commonly broken laws. And if you break any of these 10 things, you are by definition in our culture, an outlaw. Now, you might think, well, that's a small law. It doesn't really matter. But if a court convicts you of one of these things and the judge decides to to push the penalty, um, you could lose your freedom. You could be fined. And if you can't afford to pay the fine, again, you could lose your freedom. Um, So these are definitely uh, perimeters in our culture. And I'll just get to the 10 uh, laws. Speeding as we know, who hasn't sped, um, underage drinking, let's see, jaywalking, pirating music, gambling in your own home.
1: What? Like having a card night where you're playing poker or something? Yeah,
0: or just saying like, hey, you, know, you want to bet on the football game. A cop <laughs> could come in and take away your freedom for this. Um, smoking marijuana, and I've, I guess this has changed in some states, but in our state here in North Carolina, it has not. Peeing outside. Anybody ever taken a piss outside? You just broke the law. A cop could have showed up. It doesn't matter where you are. If you're outside, indecent exposure. You might lose the ability to ever work with kids again just because you had to take a piss and there wasn't a shiny toilet around. Um... Connecting to unsecured Wi-Fi. I broke this law just yesterday. We're always pulling up to places with unsecured Wi-Fi and, you know, McDonald's or Walmart. um, And apparently that's against the law. Driving while using a cell phone or texting or eating or drinking. I've seen cops do this. Oh, man. They broke the law.
1: And we all know know. the double
0: standard of cops.
1: I didn't know about eating
0: and drinking. Yeah, I I wasn't aware that was actually illegal. And, um, let's see, let me make sure I'm not missing anything. Well, this is one of my favorites. I saved this one for last. Number 10, violating federal copyright laws, as in singing Christmas songs, happy birthday, or the Macarena in public. <laughs> if you've done any of these things, you are already an outlaw.
1: Yeah, fuck you, ass cat. hmm <laughs> And ASCAP is actually an organization that will send you a letter that says, you can't play music without paying someone. So, anyway, that's not the fuck you podcast. Mm. So, you know, you mentioned that, you know, peeing outside or connecting to unsecure Wi-Fi. But, like, what are some things that people who are escaping society... I won't say we do it, but <laughs> what are some ways that, I mean, like you mentioned speeding, but are there other ways? Like trespassing.
0: Oh, yeah, trespassing. For example. I mean, Jesus, the list goes on and on. I guess to me, the, the real impression that made is, you know, it questions the line of like the law abiding citizen who respects the law over here and the outlaws over here. You know, like it's such a gray area. And, and, I don't know of anybody who doesn't ever break laws. And if you've gotten away with it, that just means you're an outlaw who got away with it. You know, it doesn't mean that you didn't actually break the law because you didn't get caught. You know, I think about Obama, like, um, admitting to having done cocaine when he was younger and never got caught. So, you know, he seems to just feel like that's okay. And anybody who gets caught, you know, throw them away. to me, I think what we really need to see is if we need to break laws or we regularly break laws as part of like how we live, you know, what side are we on? Aren't we uh, lying to ourselves to pretend like we're the the law abiding citizenry against the outlaws?
1: Yeah. And another one, for example, is um, let's say it's hot out and you want to like cool off. And maybe you don't have a bathing suit or something. So you just kind of look around, make sure you're not in the middle of public and take a quick dip. P- public nudity, public indecency, right? Mm-hmm. Same with bathrooming. And what about like if you're out in a park or, or something and you see a dandelion and you want to take a nibble of a dandelion leaf or something Poaching. something else? Yeah. I mean, it's so difficult to live without breaking a law.
0: And so here's Robin Hood back here in maybe as early as 1160. And likewise, he's living on this land. Uh, I've heard that perhaps the first Robin Hood, and we'll get into what I mean by that, I guess, in a minute, um, was possibly a farmer who offset his livelihood, like most farmers, by also hunting on the land. And here comes this idea of land ownership, this new strategy by the rich and powerful. And if you can't pay the taxes, which a lot of people couldn't, and if you weren't willing to indenture yourself and become property, someone else's property, then more and more, I could see that you would become an outlaw. At first, it would seem sort of like one of us, speeding, peeing outside, like, I'm not really an outlaw, give me a break. But more and more, as the laws became more impressive to control the poor and exploit the poor, they would feel forced to break more and more laws. And as you break every little law, then the law that's just a little bit bigger is that much easier to break. And I, I kind of imagine Robin Hood's path is looking something like that, you know, like not starting out as an outlaw, but slowly finding himself, just looking around one day and realizing, wow, all the laws I've broken have accumulated, and now I'm on this side.
1: And what was that uh, Zerzen, John Zerzan quote about outlawry?
0: Yeah, John Zerzan has this great quote that I felt was really relevant to the Robin Hood story. John Zerzan, and I've said this quote before in uh, our season one episode, Mobile Home Park. He said, when justice is against the law, only outlaws can affect justice. Huh. And that, to me, is Robin Hood in a nutshell.
1: Yeah, there was. Um, so if you look up online you know, information about Robin Hood, of course, Wikipedia article comes up. There's also this website. Um, I think it's called BoldOutlaw or something like that, dot com and it has all sorts of information, um, more than you ever really wanted to know about Robin Hood. But there was this, um, one, one thing I read that in 1226, there was a guy and this was like a a court document. It was recorded. His name was Robert Hold, H O D. And his goods were confiscated and he became an outlaw. Like it, it listed all the things like, you know, he, his money was taken away from him, whatever he had, his, his, um, belongings were taken away from him and he became an outlaw. Um, and of course there's other people in history that, uh, have had the name either Robert Hold or Hood, Robin Hood, uh, Hood. Um, and maybe, you know, it's possible that Robin Hood was based on an individual, um, or it could be a conglomeration of stories.
0: Yeah, I thought that was really interesting that uh, Robin Hood possibly became sort of a mantle. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like there were multiple Robin Hoods, almost like Batman, you know, or or the Flash, you know, how there's like, I don't know if you keep up with comics, the Flash, there's Barry Allen, and then there's Wally West, etc. Um, that there might have been like this mantle, like you become the Robin Hood.
1: Yeah, um there was another guy by the name of Roger Godbird, B E R D, and supposedly like there are um historians that have said this is the guy that was probably the historical outlaw of Sherwood Forest. But again, not sure if it was based on Roger Godbird or if it kind of all blended together. But sure enough, like there have been um many different sources throughout history that have listed the name Robin Hood or something very close to it, um, with a connection to outlawry or being a criminal or robbing, um, robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. That actually came from that same guy, Joseph Ritson in 1795. Before then, that really hadn't been a component of the story. Um, Joseph Ritson, he fancied himself like a a know-it-all on Robin Hood. And he kind of also, I think, projected some of his own beliefs and values onto Robin Hood. So we're not even sure if Robin Hood actually did give to the poor. But it's probable that whatever Robin Hood, the story, was based on, there were people back then that were stealing from the rich. (laughs) Whether they kept it for themselves or they distributed it to to the other needy people.
0: Yeah, I think about those uh, like escaping society and five easy steps. I talked about those five steps that I thought were, uh, you know, just a possible way to escape society. And the first one was seeing the problem. And I feel like, well, I can think of two people that I feel like followed what I think of the as, as those five steps or at least the first three. Um, and they're Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber and Robin Hood. One did it as an individual, and one did it as a organizer. So you got seeing the problem, and then the next step is freeing yourself from it. This is a step that gets missed by a lot of people. I feel like they automatically go into fighting, but they're fighting something they are still wholly dependent on. Ted Kaczynski moved into a little shack out in the middle of, uh, what was it, Montana? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You know, and he was living off the land. As he says, not completely, but a hell of a lot uh, closer to it than most of us get. Likewise, you got Robin Hood, you know, like part of his story is he and the Merry Men, he organized people that were also unhappy with the way things were going, were getting crushed by the law. And so they moved into Sherwood Forest. They didn't just start fighting within the village while they're they're still dependent. To me, that that part of the story where they're in Sherwood Forest um, is really a thing that doesn't get explored enough. Like, I I imagine there's a whole lot of... uh, Wild crafting, you know, a whole lot of, like, living off the land out there, like hunting. I mean, it would be hard to, like, keep a farm going out in the middle of Sherwood Forest. And obviously, they stole from people, according to the story. But still, you're out in the woods. You must know something about shelter. You know, your base, your strength is apart from what the civilization was back then. And finally, step three, they fight. Yeah. And if it's not, like, as Teresa said, giving to the poor, it was still taking from the rich it was looking at those rich and powerful people that thought they can take as much as they want and because they make the laws that it is legal they are not the outlaws robin hood and the merry men they looked at this and they said no we're not going to allow it we're going to take this stuff that is not rightly yours and we're going to take it back and i love that
1: i uh, i looked up a few people throughout history that um I tried to, to get information about people who were doing those first three steps of escaping society, especially like getting out of society and then fighting and whether they're giving to the poor or at least, you know, doing something for their cause that they feel is right. And one that really stood out was... Yeah. Yes. Motorcycles. Um, this woman, she was known as the bandit queen. Um, her name, I believe, it's pronounced Fulan Fulan Devi, um, from India. She was born in 1963, and she joined a group of bandits that were living in the ravines outside of their poor villages um, in the states in India of Uttar Pradesh and Madhya Pradesh. And they would uh, they would rob flashy cars on the highway. They would kidnap for ransom. And they would loot the upper caste people and they would give money to the poor, supposedly, although there wasn't much proof about that. Um, after every crime, she would supposedly visit a temple for Durga and thank the goddess for protection. And she actually met a gruesome end in 2001. Um, she had a really, really rough life. Like, she was married at age 11 and, like, raped and abused by gangs and everything, but she actually tried to make a life where she was helping others, even though it was with joining a gang, but they uh, escaped into the ravines. They didn't just stay in the village, um, to perform what they were doing. Another, uh, person is this guy named Salvatore Giuliano in Sicily. He was born in 1922, and by the age of 27, um, he had assembled a gang of 50 men. They escaped to the mountain terrain after killing, well, he killed two officers who were uh, holding him for supposedly black market food distribution. And this was in the time after the Allies had invaded Sicily in 1943, so there was a lot of black market food happening um, just to get food to people that were starving. So he was picked up. And he was like, hell no, I'm fighting, and then um, was able to rob the wealthy uh, and get food and weapons and redistribute it to the hungry peasants and villagers. So Salvatore Giuliano. And there were other ones, like some of them you've heard of, like Pancho Villa, um, even Al Capone, not necessarily escaping to any sort of hills or forests, but Al Capone, didn't he open up a soup kitchen in the Great Depression?
0: That's what I heard. He actually did more to help uh, feed the hungry in Chicago than, uh, like, the government did.
1: And Pancho Villa, although he did some, um, he did commit some atrocities. He was known even by President Woodrow Wilson as a sort of Robin Hood. He would um, donate to children's charities and orphanages, as well as steal from rich uh, haciendas, distributing the cattle and corn to the poor. He even kept butcher shops open for the purpose of distributing to the poor uh, for all the cattle, like opening up butcher shops mm-hmm. so that he could process all the cows that he stole.
0: Well, let's not forget uh, Pretty Boy Floyd.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, Pretty Boy Floyd was an outlaw in the, I don't know, early 1900s, the gangster era, and he was uh he would, like, t- just give huge, generous amounts of money to, like, um, I don't know about soup kitchens, but, like, families on relief and, like, poor farmers that would help him out. I mean, he re- was really somebody who uh, targeted the rich and the banks and would give to the poor and share with the poor.
1: There was this guy in Slovakia in the region of, like, the Czech Republic, um, Poland, Hungary. Um, his name was Juraj Janosik. And at the age of 15, he joined a group of bandits and assumed leadership at the age of 23. He was a symbol of resistance to oppression. And he lived in the mountains and valleys outside of uh, Slovakia. And again, robbing from the rich as a highwayman um, and then sharing it with the poor. He was actually caught. Supposedly, a a treacherous old woman spilled some peas in front of him and he slipped on them. And that's how he was caught.
0: Damn treacherous old women.
1: Treacherous old women. Oh, there was this guy in uh, Japan back in uh, the 1800s. He led a double life as a laborer and firefighter by day and a nimble thief by night. His nickname was Rat Boy. Uh, Nezumi Kozo or Nakamura Jirokichi in what is now, uh, Tokyo, Japan. He confessed to stealing over 30,000 Ryo, which I guess is a lot of money from a hundred samurai estates and from at least 100 feudal lords. He distributed the money to the poor and he was, um, I believe beheaded for that. Mm. But yeah, there's been so many people. There, there was this guy in um, South Africa. He actually came from Scotland, and he was a he was kind of like a rich guy. He was known as Scotty Smith, the Robin Hood of the Kalahari. <laughs> but his real name was like George Saint Legier Lennox. Anyway, he uh, he was known uh, to love horses, and he was an outlaw, even though he had enough money not to be. But he would distribute uh, money to the poor. He would especially help out widows and defenseless women who offered their hospitality to him, who didn't even know who he was. In fact, he was uh, someone who was a master of disguises, of getting people to believe he was someone else. One time, he handed over the police detective that arrested him as Scotty Smith. Like, he's (laughs) Scotty Smith, but he... Influenced someone else like he made someone else think that the police officer the detective was him (laughs) and one time a farmer wanted to turn scotty in for a reward so scotty was like okay and then he got away um that was back in the late or mid to late 1800s what's this guy's name scotty smith
0: man i want to check that guy out
1: um and there's also like el chapo guzman i'm i'm sure you've Heard of his name, despite the official uh, designation by the United States government as a terrorist, he's actually idolized by many Mexicans for numerous escapes from prison and his reputation for giving to the poor. He gives money to the sick and he also helps pave roads for poor communities. Another guy from Mexico, Jesus Malverde, was a legendary bandit in the late 19th century. He stole from the rich and gave to the poor. And this guy in um, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, His nickname is 2N. He is a powerful drug trafficker in the slums of Rio de Janeiro, but he's known for arranging a kidnapping of healthcare officials, as well as uh, um, procuring medical supplies so that members of the poor communities could receive much needed vaccines. He had his gang supervise uh, the kidnapped nurses as they administered vaccines to the poor residents of Salguero uh, for several hours. And then they were safely returned and uh, he's also known for throwing bundles of cash to the poor. He's praised for his act uh, that he that he's kidnapped the nurses and had them administer vaccines. He was praised for this by local media as well as some local politicians. So it's kind of interesting that in different countries, especially countries that have a lot of, uh, poor struggling communities for, for whatever poor means that people that are like drug traffickers and drug Lords tend to step up or like the mafia, you know, they start stepping up because the government is so goddamn corrupt that somebody has to do something.
0: And I'd say like, you don't have to look very far to see smaller examples of that. Like anybody who's like been poor, been kind of on uh the wrong side of the tracks, hit hard times, I mean, there's been so many times of my own experience, and I've I've heard other people's stories where the people that help you are the people with the tattoos, the people with the criminal records, the people that are also on the wrong side of the tracks. And those fucking law-abiding, and as we know, as we just talked about, they're not even law-abiding, but they imagine themselves to be the law-abiding citizenry. Um, just drive by you, you know, just totally like don't offer anything. If they maybe if they vote. You know, blue, then they vote for people to try to take care of the poor, but they feel like their job is done. Um, God, I I have always found the outlaws to be the more noble people. I've always found my drug dealers when I was younger to be the people that would like have my back when I really needed help. Um, and I see the media kind of like, I don't know, I see the media sort of like, at least in movies, you know, this character, it's. Kind of told, you see a lot of noble outlaws, but at the same time, there's a lot of stories that kind of like throw that little monkey wrench in at the end, you know, like, oh, you know, like they killed you because you couldn't pay back the money. Man, I know so many outlaws that like help people out and there's no like little cautionary tale at the end. They're just good people.
1: (laughs) I saw this poem as I was just reading along in different articles, and I just like to share it. It's a 17th century anonymous poem. uh, written poem, and it goes like this The law locks up the man or woman who steals the goose from the common, but lets the greater felon loose who steals the common from the goose. <laughs> and I thought that was a good tie in, too, because I was talking about how the land was being enclosed, the commons were quickly disappearing for industry, um, whether it was, you know, agriculture, wool or just the nobility wanting their own places to, to hunt. And, uh, yeah, same today. Oh, there was one other I wanted to share. Um, team poison and anonymous during the Occupy movement. Um, team poison and anonymous. What are these two different groups? Yeah. Anonymous was during the Occupy, like Occupy wall street. Uh-huh. Um, they were just known as anonymous they organized uh, computer hacking into big banks like Citibank and Chase and J.P. Morgan, and they specifically targeted credit card numbers that were the platinum credit card number holders, mm-hmm. like the real like rich people, as well as corporate credit cards. And they somehow managed to charge donations to charities that were helping out the protests <laughs> to these cards. Now, The banks that they did this, that they hacked into, they didn't admit to any of this. But I don't know, you know, again, like, these stories, where did they come from? Did it actually happen? Who's covering it up? Who knows? But I thought that was interesting from more Mm -hmm. recent times. And let's see. Um, We talked about just individuals like Ted Kaczynski. What about um, the Luddites?
0: Yeah, the Luddites... um you know, a lot of us, I would imagine most of our listeners have heard of the Luddites, but in case you haven't, um, at the time of the Industrial Revolution, like early 1800s in England, um, there was a group of people that called themselves the Luddites. And um, they they were said to follow General Ludd or King Ludd. And they would sabotage, they would break um, frames and the machines back then. And they would also threaten the rich and powerful people um, in these towns. And it turns out that like kind of the the center of this activity like the original town where this movement began was Nottingham.
1: <laughs> Just like Robin the
0: very town that Robin Hood came from. And uh you know that really caught my eye when I was researching the Luddites. And um you know this was a town of people that grew up with these Robin Hood tales, these Robin Hood stories of this noble outlaw, this man that stood up to the powerful and um Became what the powerful called an outlaw to affect justice, as John Zerzan might say. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, inspired growing up, you can imagine these people as little boys, you know, and, and little girls, because women also helped this movement, hearing this tale and and that kind of becoming part of who they are, you know, this story, this character. So I feel like that kind of primed them to be a little more ready to step up when they saw injustice happening. Now Luddites have this reputation for being against technology, and from my understanding of the actual movement, it wasn't so much against technology, it was against the rich exploiting the poor. And because the rich own the technology, they broke the technology. Hmm. So that just kind of became, you know, sort of got warped into Neo Luddism. But anyway, the Luddites carried this tradition, and um there was a poem that came out at this time of the Luddite movement. And um this is part of a longer poem, but they mention Robin Hood. And this one verse says, No more chant your rhymes about bold Robin Hood. His feats I do little admire. I'll sing the achievement of General Ludd, now the hero of Nottinghamshire. And I like that, you know, instead of just taking the Robin Hood story and being inspired by it, and then, like, let's say, Continuing it, they decided to compete with it. I just felt like that was, you know, like whatever seed of that was, was just so badass, you know, like, oh, no, we're not going to be the new Robin Hood. We're going to be so damn. Defiant, We're going to be so much of a movement that people are going to forget about Robin Hood. They're going to be talking about the Luddites after we're done. (laughs) So I really love the spirit of the Luddites, you know, and and that acknowledgement, you know, that they grew up with this story. And even they're thinking about Robin Hood as they're sneaking around in the dark and, like, sabotaging these factories and, uh, you know, trying to stop the powerful from exploiting the poor.
1: Yeah, and... You know, as I mentioned, there there were a number of individual and groups. Some of the other ones, Gumby, I think you know more about the uh, the Lowry gang.
0: Yeah, I don't want to say too much about it because I'm afraid I'm going to get the facts wrong. But here in North Carolina, we uh, there's an, a tribe of Indians that live here that has a really interesting history themselves. I won't get into Lumbee. Um, but one of their biggest <laughs> heroes that the Lumbee talk about is this guy. I know his last name's Lowry. It might be Henry... Henry something Lowry. But anyway, during the Civil War, um, there was an injustice done to his family, and rather than standing for it, he formed a gang that was uh, notoriously like uh, independent. I mean, they headed off into the swamps of North Carolina, and let me tell you, living in North Carolina... Yeah they were dealing with some shit and they must have been tough as hell and there was like white people there were escaped slaves there were free blacks there were indians of the Lumbee tribe it was a really mixed group and they went out and they headed off into the wilds and even after the civil war they could not stop the lowry gang the lowry gang would help out the poor would help out the people and would um affect justice on the powerful and there's just story after story of the army being called out and the Lowry gang outsmarting the army um, <laughs> before they were finally stopped. And they were stopped like one by one, very slowly, kind of a sad tale of, you know, the, the last member of the Lowry gang. Um, but I'll save that for another episode. But, yeah, check out the Lowry gang. This is another um, group of people that whether they were even aware of the Robin Hood stories, I can't say. But they carried on that lineage, that spirit.
1: Yeah. And there's, there's, like I said, there's so much history, especially, um, around the time of the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, um, where there were other gangs, especially in that same exact region in England. And I'll just n- mention the names. You can do the research yourself. Um, the Folville gang led by Eustace Folville, the Cotterell gang led by James Cotterell and, uh, this guy by the name of Adam the leper. <laughs> um and his group of outlaws but it wasn't until and and like all of these stories all of these people um may have influenced the stories of Robin Hood but it wasn't until 1820 that a book specifically written for children was released about the stories of Robin Hood and that was again uh Joseph Ritson that same guy that was you know rob from the poor give to the rich or rob from the rich give to the poor <laughs> um back in uh, the late 18 excuse me late uh, 18th century yeah so his book came out in 1820 for children and i was just wondering if if you thought it was interesting at all as far as like you know how kids might view this no. The story of
0: Robin Hood. <laughs> you are loaded questions. Mm. Um, well, I uh, I do find it interesting. I, fi- I find that I think probably what happened back then was probably, you know, it just kind of got watered down or whatever. There was no, like, Killing. underground agenda yeah. for turning it into a kid's tale. But uh, now that I'm learning more about Robin Hood and thinking deeper into the story, I'm thinking, like, how cool is it that the kid's even nowadays, grow up learning about Robin Hood, even this fucking watered-down Disney version, you know, Mm -hmm. with the little fox that's Robin Hood and, you know, that cartoon, even that, it's pretty clear Robin Hood is an outlaw and that he's against the sheriff of Nottingham, the law enforcement. Um, This is a tale that is so important to tell our children And I feel like if you're a parent out there and you have kids to tell this story to, man, it is really worth uh, digging a little deeper into Robin Hood and and telling this story continually, you know, like really digging into what Robin Hood is, because look at how many elements of a resistance are there. Somebody who's not just taking it. When they see something that's wrong, they stand up against it, against incredible odds. It was the same back then. Robin Hood didn't have a ready-made army, and he was going up against the established authority. Mm -hmm. That was not a battle that was a clear, like, we're going to win this thing, but he felt obliged to stand against injustice. This is an important thing to teach our children. Um, Making your base in the forest, you know, Robin Hood going to Sherwood Forest and the Merry Men, organizing, like finding other people, finding good ways to organize, um, You know, I talked a lot of shit about Deep Green Resistance last podcast. But one thing I will say about them is they probably have a lot of uh, good ideas about how to organize or at least get that ball rolling, that conversation going. Um, And where to pit yourself. You know, so many of us are taught to to chase the dollar. You know, that it's a mark of success that if you're a good person, you still try to get rich. You just like, you know, maybe fun to... You give to uh, charities, mm-hmm. things like that. But Robin Hood, he allied himself with the poor. I mean, he, he almost, to me, to my mind, took himself out of the equation. He didn't live like a pauper. He lived like money didn't even, like, it wasn't a thing. He was out there in the woods.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, depending on how you value that depends on whether you think he was a rich man or a poor man. That was not the point. He just removed himself from the equation, and then he fought the rich. He pitted himself against the rich and powerful. I think that's something that needs to be taught to our children. Rich and powerful people are not to be role modeled. They are not to be allied with. They are not to be worked with. They twist words. They they stay rich and powerful. That's how they got to be rich and powerful and why they're still rich and powerful. And even if that got added a little bit later in the story giving to the poor, allying yourself with the poor. And let me tell you, I meet a lot of homeless people, and like they're not always the easiest person to ally with people to ally with. A lot of them are fucking crazy. A lot of them are uh, uh, addicted to substances. A lot of them are very untrustworthy and dangerous. Um, But at the same time, I think we need to have a kinship with these people because these are the people that have been chewed up, have been sucked dry and spit out by our culture. So even as fucked up as they may be, and there's a lot of noble souls out there too, by the way, um, we need to think of those as our people and not to completely jump the the tracks too much, but hell, Jesus Christ. I'd say Jesus Christ, you know, like a predecessor to Robin Hood. If anything, I wonder if Robin Hood grew up with these stories of Jesus Christ, and if that didn't influence him. Jesus allied himself with the poor, set himself against the rich, um, went out into the desert, you know, like he calls it God, he calls it you know, whatever you want to call it, but he allied himself with something that's wild, that's ancient, that's old, that's more all-encompassing than civilization. And he was tried and condemned and executed as an outlaw. Mm -hmm. Again, we have all the elements right there. And all the people that supposedly follow this story, you know, just leave out all the parts that might uh, cause them to have to risk something.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I like what you just said about, um, I guess oh man, how did you say it? When it's a, it's scary to let go of the things that we're told are comfortable, are safe, are the quote unquote right thing to do. But when you really look at, I mean, whether you're helping the poor or just walking the walk, I think that's the most important message too, to, to tell our kids is not just, oh, it's a fanciful story, but like you can do this, and this has been proven to have an impact. It might not have taken down all of civilization, but it might in the future. It's so unstable right now with the pandemic and all this, you know, up in the air with the elections and what the hell else is going on.
0: Oh, there's uh, George Floyd.
1: Oh, yeah. All uh, the, the riots
0: breaking out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: and again, you might even say some of these like I don't know all the motivations of all the protesters, but again, these are people who saw a problem. Now, they they skip that next step that I think is important for a real lasting revolution, so what we see over and over are people that sort of like Throw a big riot, loot a town, bunch of windows get busted, maybe a couple cars get burned, and it's almost like a temper tantrum. It subsides, mm-hmm. and then we go back to normal. And I think that's because they're missing that next step of removing yourself yeah. from this culture. They're still dependent on it. What are they going to do? It's like a rubber band that gets stretched really tight, and then you let go, and what happens? It snaps right back to where it was. So, but they are fighting. Mm-hmm. So I feel like in a way, in my mind, an incomplete way, they carry the spirit of Robin Hood.
1: They're walking the walk At least somewhat
0: Yeah I mean More than most of us You know Most of us just kind of Have our opinions Gripe about it And that's about as far As we get (laughs) But I think the most important Thing about Robin Hood And so many of these Other people we're mentioning Is action they did something, and action always require, requires risk. And if you don't think you're risking anything right now because you're not taking this action, consider that you are indeed going to die and what you're probably going to die of. You're probably going to die of cancer or maybe colon cancer, maybe something really ugly. You know, maybe uh, your, your cholesterol is going to go off the charts. I mean, civilization is a horrifically dangerous thing to participate in. We're all on death row. We're all going to die a bad death. There's no good death in the civilization unless it is standing up for a noble cause and fighting it. So I think that's part of something that spurs me on when I think about the Robin Hood story. You know, we're sitting here right now and the breeze is blowing on the Blue Ridge Parkway and I'm just thinking, you know, I've always loved the idea, even when I was a kid, of the, the Merry Men, even the name. You know, it's not just like the fighting men. <laughs> it's not Robin Hood's army. It's the merry men. You always picture them out there like kind of enjoying themselves, joking, teasing each other, drinking. You know, I mean, it's, it's like a celebration. And I think that's a really important part of the story, too. Like, to be a part of a resistance, you need to have something that, like, inspires. Yeah. What are we—what are—if we're fighting this— What does the alternative look like? And people had that in Robin Hood's time, you know, depending on which telling of the story, I suppose. But that role model, I would imagine if I was some peasant and I'm getting like taxed to death, I'm barely making it, I'm barely scraping by, the sheriff is an asshole, you know, he shows up and just does whatever the fuck he wants. And if somehow I find myself wandering out there in that forest to the merry men who are out there living in the woods, you know, like just enjoying themselves with all this freedom, no taxes. They know how to do it. I'm going to be freaking inspired. Yeah. And I'm probably going to join that group.
1: I mean, it's like us too. I know we don't have it all figured out near, not at all, but we're out here, we're bathing in waterfalls. We're eating wild strawberries yesterday that were so good. And of course we still have our attachments like with the van. And all that comes with the vehicle maintenance and whatnot, but we're trying. like we're we are for the most part, I think our days are really enjoyable
0: mm-hmm. yeah. we we work really hard on step one, seeing the problem, delving into that, exploring that. That's what most of our podcasts are. And I think we do pretty well. I mean, better than some on step two, you know, we're moving ourselves from it, trying to find some way to to gain independence on it. Of course, we've got a lot of work to go, you know, (laughs) I'm not trying to like toot our own horns too much here. It's step three that we're kind of, we're trying to figure out how to fight Mm -hmm. or what does that even mean nowadays? So, you know, it's not, I don't know, maybe it is, and maybe it isn't as simple as it was in Robin Hood's time, because I would imagine it seemed pretty complicated back then too, but he fought anyway.
1: And Gumby, did you have anything else you wanted to uh, to add as far as Robin Hood goes?
0: Well, just a closing thought for me is I'm thinking about outlaws and I'm thinking about, you know, that list of 10 things I just said. And I could have gone on. You know, I just didn't want to go on. I figured it'd be boring to talk about 20 laws that probably most of us break. <laughs> but 10 laws, you know, and consider... That These laws are set up. There are so many freaking laws that you need an interpreter to go to the court of your own country. This is your culture, your country, and you are supposed to hire an interpreter. We call them a lawyer because the language is so complex of how to navigate these laws that it's almost like considered a death sentence, a suicide to go in there on your own without this lawyer. So you're already an outlaw. And anytime they decide to turn the tide against you for any reason, they can find laws you've broken. You have broken laws. Maybe you've just, you know, been a little fish. Little fish. You're not causing much harm. And hell, maybe you're, all, you're benefiting society so goddamn much. You're getting a promotion at your job. You're doing most of the things you're supposed to. The rich are getting rich off of you. They love you. So if you want to break a few laws, eh, we'll look the other way. But wait till that one day that you get pushed a little too much and you stand up, they can find stuff on any of us. We're already outlaws. (laughs) So I would say we need to embrace that more. The world has never needed outlaws more. John Zerzan's words, when justice is against the law, only outlaws can affect justice, have never been truer. It's never been clearer that the entire fucking planet is being held... Hostage doesn't seem like the right word, but it's being murdered and being exploited legally by people who make the laws to protect their rights to do horrible things while people that don't go along with this are considered outlaws. We need to embrace that. We need to be outlaws. We need to find ways to break the law. And I I, I, I encourage people to find one law to break every day. I mean, I just gave you a list. How hard is that? My God, just piss outside, for God's sakes. But practice being an outlaw. Break those goddamn laws. Practice standing up. You know, from maybe these little stances, a big stance will come. You know, see how much you can push it. Take some risk, little risks, but practice. Because the world desperately needs outlaws. And who, you know, I love the idea of Robin Hood being a mantle. Who's going to be the next Robin Hood? I feel like so many of us are kind of waiting around thinking, like, I could probably be one of the merry men. And, you know, when I say merry men, I'm using the the old language, but I'm including women, everybody. I could probably join the group. We need Robin Hood. We need somebody to, like, unite us, to lead us, to tell us how to fight in a really concise way. Um, But maybe we need to aim higher. Maybe instead of aiming to be one of the merry men, maybe we need to wonder... Who's going to be the next Robin Hood? Because my God, wouldn't it be great if there was a Robin Hood to stand up right now? Not somebody to just like write a book or make a podcast, (laughs) you know, just to like talk about things, but somebody who's actually out there that we could join and follow. And maybe it's one of us. Maybe we've never led a damn thing in our life. I mean, I love thinking about Robin Hood as a farmer and a hunter. Not as a military leader, not as the nobleman, you know, although the movies now indicate Robin Hood was kind of like some kind of noble, you know, and like he's trying to get his title back.
1: <laughs> Fuck there that, Robin Hood. There we go. Trying to reestablish the, uh, the status quo.
0: Yeah. And that's something I feel like they, they feel like people in our culture can understand, like, oh, of course we want our money back, you know. But the Robin Hood I'm studying in history sounds like a fairly poor guy you know, the the original Robin Hood, and not somebody who was like originally a leader, probably somebody who felt like you or me or any of us. Like, I'm just trying to make my way in this world. And he got pushed too far and he decided to step up. And lo and behold, probably more to his surprise than anyone else's, he found himself at the front of something, a leader. In his name, we still tell stories of this outlaw, this thief that we tell stories to our children as a hero. (laughs) <laughs> I am hugely inspired by that, and I'm waiting to see, like, who's the next Robin Hood, and I'm asking myself what we should all be asking. Could I be the next Robin Hood? <laughs> so I guess that's just my kind of, my last thought I had on that.
1: Thank you for that. And a listener right in from Nicholas in, I'm very sorry, Nicholas, um, Saint-Étienne, France. He said of our episode, Under Lock and Key, he said, damn crucial subject matter here. Thank you very much. Great, great podcast, especially the part about stealing. Look like you own the place. Exactly. It is even possible to camouflage as an insider, either an anonymous controller of the mall supply chain or a controller of the security agents in charge there. Looking forward for the podcast about theft. We're getting there. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, Nicholas, the uh, this seemed relevant since uh, Robin Hood is the Prince of Thieves, but uh, this is not our podcast about thievery. Yeah. We hope to do a more informative podcast <laughs> at some point.
1: And if you, as a listener of ours, would like to write in, we have a comment form on our website, right on the front page there. Our website is www.escapingsociety. That's all one word. Weebly. And, um you can also find links to our YouTube channel. We have videos on there of how maybe you might uh, begin to break some laws there, <laughs> whether it's bathing in a river or um foraging on lands that aren't yours or what have you. And uh, we also have our Facebook page at Escaping Society. Look for the Burn and Rocking Chair. And we thank you as always for listening.
0: Mm-hmm. Long live Robin Hood. Thank you for listening to our song It's not very good and it went kind of long Don't care if you like it cause we'll be gone Over that next horizon
1: We ain't got no